Welcome to Emmanuel. We are going through in this start to the year the kind of um, the kind of core values, the things that we take really seriously at Emmanuel. Um, so we're going through these over several weeks, and uh, today I want to look at the first of four. It's a very simple value. It's an answer to the question: Who leads this church? Who's in charge? What kind of government or structure? Do you have? And we want to spend a couple of weeks answering that question. And uh, the title of these talks is, is the answer. Jesus leads the church. Uh, and it's going to be cut, as I say, into two parts. And that might sound like a trite kind of twee answer. Jesus leads the church. That's what you're supposed to say. Is Jesus is the answer to every question in church, isn't it? You know, from who's, who's the Lord, who rose from the dead, who died for us, right through to... You know, where do I go to get my coffee? You know, it's, 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 there's always this kind of, the answer's got to be Jesus or something's gone wrong. So, so we expect you to be a little bit suspicious of the, the statement, Jesus leads the church. But I do want to help you see why that's an important answer and begin to share what that really means. And to help us with that, we're going to look at uh, the, the first few verses of uh, the letter written by Jesus' dear friend John. Uh, John was one of the 12 disciples, one of the closest of the disciples to Jesus, a very dear friend indeed. And he, he wrote three letters, and I'm going to read you the first four verses of the first of those letters. So 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the whole subject of authority when it comes to spiritual matters is often uh, unwelcome. We tend to talk about being spiritual in 21st century Brighton quite comfortably. Most people will say, you know, I'm a spiritual person. I'm not religious, but I, I'm, I'm spiritual. That's, that's the normal way we tend to talk here. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy with the whole idea of a spiritual side of life, and I think it's important to be spiritual, uh, but I, I, I'm not religious. And, I, and I, I, I guess the reason people make that distinction is at least partly because religion tends to be associated with uh, authority. It tends to be associated with uh, dogma, which I guess just means you know systems of belief, um, something that everyone has to believe, and people in charge. I was listening to uh, uh, one of my favorite comedians actually on being interviewed once years ago, and uh, he was saying how you know I, I'm a very spiritual person. He said in the interview, I, I, I think spiritual things are important. I wouldn't want to mock that. I'd take that side of life seriously, and he. He said, uh, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll go and sit inside a, uh, a, you know, an old church building and just soak up the vibe and feel the spiritual side. And the interviewer said, what happens if a minister walks in? He said, oh, then I'll just get up and leave. 
And that was a, a typical example of what I'm saying, that, that we're attracted to the spiritual, but we're, we're repulsed by the idea of authority, someone leading. And I guess there may be all kinds of reasons for that, maybe some quite valid ones. Perhaps some have been uh, abused by spiritual authority, people who've, who've used the name of God to bully people and be tyrants. But I have to tell you, I think authority is not something you can get rid of. We might try and squeeze authority out of life, but it will come back. It's like when you try and squeeze a suitcase down by, by, you know, by moving one thing in, and you think, I've just about managed to squeeze it, and something else bursts up on the other side. It, the, the concept of authority, we might try and kind of squeeze it away, but it will always be there. Even if we say, well, we, we, why don't we create a community where there's no authority? Why don't we have a society where there's nobody in charge and we all just kind of hold hands and make our own clothes out of hemp and we just kind of, we're just happy and we never need anyone to be in charge. And that's a, obviously a nice, nice idealistic vision. Maybe, maybe it's not. But whatever it is, it doesn't work because the person that says, oh, don't worry, no one's in charge here. There's no authority here. A, they're killing themselves, and B, they might be kidding you. They might be conning you. When somebody says, no, we, we, we don't believe in authority. No one's allowed to have authority. What does that sound like? It sounds like authority. You're not allowed to? Oh, so, so, so in order to keep that rule, we're having to make a rule. We're, having to, we're going to have to enforce it, too. We're going to have to take up authority. It, it doesn't work. It contradicts itself. The idea that there's never any authority doesn't really work. Uh, but then we're, we're left with this still this dilemma because spiritual authority does tend to be a little bit risky for sure and it can become abusive and you know the old saying power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely that's definitely true that's observable not just in world history but in sadly church history so we can't kid ourselves it's definitely a danger but the the problem is we we tend to to swing between extremes so we, we say, well, we don't want authority. Uh, we'll just go to this kind of unrealistic kind of flatness that doesn't really work because usually someone still rises up and starts bullying everybody. You ever notice that? People can say, no, we're very inclusive. We're very tolerant. We're very diverse. We, we don't hold to any system of truth. We, no, 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 it's not, no, no, everyone's welcome. Every position, every, everyone is, we, we really want to be tolerant. As soon as you start disagreeing on some issue, you suddenly realize it's not, it's not tolerant. It's not. It's, it doesn't seem to work. But the other extreme is force, is bullying tactics. And sometimes because of a frustration with the kind of anarchy that can grow up in any community, in a, in a family, let alone a church or an organization or a company or in a nation, People can return to just, well, we don't really know whether we like this leader, but we're going to get behind them anyway, just because we need someone with strength. We need someone with force, who's powerful. And we'll have to take the rough with the smooth. We just need someone who can fix this nation. And, and you know, history tells a few stories like that as well, and they're often pretty hideous. So where do we go on this issue of authority? And practically, just to answer the question of church, where, where do we go when it comes to authority in the church? And like I said, the really, the really nice thing I have to say today, one of the reasons that Christianity is good news, is that actually, ultimately, it's true that Jesus, Jesus leads the church. Jesus is in authority. 
that's the way he wants it, that's the way it is, and that can give us all kinds of benefits. That, that, that takes a lot of these anxieties away from us. We might want to ask him, but really, how can Jesus be in charge of the church? What does that really mean? He's not even here, is he? We can't see him. I mean, how can he really lead the church? I know that Jesus was around 2,000 years ago, and he, he gathered his disciples, and he started his church, but he may have started it. He can't be leading it now. Well, I want to talk to you about how this really works out and talk about three things, really. First of all, his commitment to his church, his ongoing commitment to his church. And secondly, his presence amongst his church. Yes, his presence with us even now. And then finally, his word for his church. So that's our plan. So I want to start with, firstly, his, his commitment to his church. And there's a lot of ways to make this point, but I'm going to just use the, the first few lines of the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is, is the kind of Jesus part two that Luke wrote. Luke wrote two books that we have in the Bible. One is Luke, and the other is Acts. Acts is like Luke the sequel. It's like Luke... One is Jesus begins, and then Acts is what happened next. But listen to the way that Luke writes this. And, and bear in mind that the book of Acts is 28 chapters describing what happened in the church after Jesus left, physically left. So you, you know the story. Jesus gets crucified, gets buried, and then on the third day, the Bible says he was raised to life. And 40 days later... After he spent time with his disciples again, many appearances, many proofs that he really is risen from the dead, he, he goes to be with the Father. The Bible talks about the ascension. Jesus is raised up to be with the Father. So now we're talking about what happens next, and you'd think, well, well, you'd expect to know how that would be introduced. But listen to these words, okay? Verses 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, this is the guy that Luke's writing to. I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, the key word there, began. That's a curious word to use because it suggests that Luke's about to write about what he continued to do and teach. The first book was what he began. This next book is what Jesus did next. What Jesus did what Jesus did next. That's really what Luke's writing. And he's saying this whole story, this whole story of the church, is, it's still Jesus. It's Jesus doing it. Jesus is busy. He's involved. He's active. He's, he is working, not just behind the scenes, but often right up front through, through powerful visions and extraordinary miracles. Jesus is right in the thick of the action. He may not be so visible anymore, but trust me, Luke's saying, he's the guy pulling the strings. He's leading his church. There's a few phrases where he even says things like, the Lord was working with them referring to the apostles. There's one famous story where Saul, the persecutor of the church who hates Christians and wants to kill them, Jesus meets him when he's traveling to the town of Damascus. He, Saul has this extraordinary direct vision of Jesus, and he's, he can't, he's blinded by it. It's an extraordinary, powerful story in the Bible. But here's the thing that's amazing. Jesus' line to Saul, the persecutor of the church, is, Saul! Why are you persecuting me? That's a curious phrase again. Me. Why me? I can imagine it's also, I, I don't even know who, who are you. 
I'm persecuting Christians, not you. I just hate these Christians, don't we all? We just hate them, they're so annoying. And then this one says, you're persecuting me. What's he saying? Say, this is me, these are my people, this, they're joined with me. Do you think I don't care about them? These are the ones I came for, these are the ones I die for, this is the ones I'm praying for right now. A friend of mine is plotting a church in Istanbul and uh, he, he had a, a, just a few people gathering. It was really early days when he was planting this church. It was very difficult. It was very hard planting a church in a Muslim-majority country. And he's not impressed. He's not very pleased with himself. He feels like they're not getting very far. But it's like, okay, we'll still gather. Just a few Christians together with a Bible, singing songs to Jesus, trying to sing in Turkish, not doing very well, just feeling almost a bit embarrassed of it. Anyway, a man becomes a Christian in the neighborhood and, and comes to church. He brings his his girlfriend at the time, and uh, she, she hates it. She comes to church, she hates it. She's annoyed that her, her fellow has become a Christian. Can't stand it. And, he, and it's oh, this is so ridiculous. Why have I come? And she just laughs at the whole meeting. They're all trying to sing in Turkish. We know that lots of them aren't even Turkish. And she just, just despises it. That night, she has a dream of Jesus. Jesus' first line to her is, why are you mocking my church? And then he, he said to her, he showed her his scars on his hands. He said, do you think these hurt? She, she says, yeah. And he says, let me show you. He puts his finger on her hand in the dream, and she feels this pain go through her. She realizes this is real in the dream. Wakes up later, and she's still got the scars on her hands. It's a friend of mine, Annie McCulloch, and he, he, he was just, he's just describing one example of, of this, this principle that Jesus, he gets passionate about his people. We might be embarrassed of church. We might be ashamed of Christians. We might think little of it. He doesn't. He's committed. He's committed now. Even now, you might think, well, he's, he's gone to be with the fight. He's done his time. He's out of the game. Why would he care? Why would he be interested in what's going on next? You know, sometimes you, you hear stories about people who become celebrities sort of overnight. Or you, know, you, see, you see someone's star just rise. You see, you know, this, this person is becoming really popular. They're becoming a big deal. Maybe a friend of yours. Maybe this has happened to some of you. You've, you've met someone and they've just had that roller coaster where it's just suddenly they've become a big deal. And you're kind of wondering if they're still going to be your friend. You kind of want, you know, I wonder if they'll have time for me anymore. The little people. And, and I suppose Jesus, this, this is the story of Jesus as much as anything. I'll, I'll read you from, from one of Paul who later wrote letters after he became uh, one of Jesus' followers. This same man, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that's a, that's a complex, kind of clumsy sentence almost. It's, it's a lot of stuff going on in that. But let me summarize it. It's basically saying Jesus is the classic example of the one that's picked up and put in a place of fame. 
He arrived and didn't just arrive, you know, lots of Facebook friends and followers and, and, and sort of in the, in the press. No, no. Jesus has been placed, as he says here, in the place high above all power and dominion, all rule and authority, every influence, every power, everything that has any impact on the outcome of world history, Jesus is above it. Jesus has been placed in that position of absolute cosmic supreme authority. He's there. But here's what Paul wants us to see. He, he, he says here, and he put, in verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. To the church. You know, just, just imagine a parenthesis or, the, or a brackets around as head over all things and read the sentence again. He put all things under his feet and gave him to the church. That would make sense. So you bring back those words. What's it say? It's saying Jesus is God's gift to the church. Okay, that's one thing to start with. Jesus is the gift that God has given to his people. God loves his people. He gives, he gives his son Christ to the church. But one of the ways in which Jesus is given us, one of the, one of the things that, that we benefit, one of the blessings for the church in the gift of Christ is that he is head over all things for the church. That's the point that Paul's making here. Now, for us to get our heads around this, and I'll, I'll tell you the truth. If and when you, if you're a child of God, if you come to understand what is meant by that verse fully, it will change your life completely. See, you've got to imagine Jesus as the one that's been raised up and everyone thinking, is he going to remember us where he's going? Is he going to remember the little people that he used to be mates with? Jesus has gone to the place of highest authority in the universe for the sake of the ones he was mates with. He's ruling over all things for the sake of his people. If you love Jesus, if you belong to him, you can go through life knowing he's ruling over all things with me in mind. He's thinking about me while he's in charge of planets that they haven't even named yet and oceans that they haven't explored and presidents that no one can rein in. Jesus is in complete control, and he does it for the sake of his eternal people, the church. He's totally committed to the church. That's true now. It wasn't just true when he loved them, when he washed their feet and looked after them. It's just as true now. It always will be. So we can be confident in his ongoing commitment. But secondly, we can be confident in his ongoing presence with his people. Let me touch on this one quickly. This actually comes from what I read to you at the start. Remember I read those words from John. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's his name for Jesus, the word. You remember in, in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. One of Jesus' names, the word, the logos is the Greek word. It means, it means God's revelation. It means God's wisdom and reason, the thing that holds the world together, God's wonderful eternal word. And then he says, the life was made manifest. In other words, this, this word didn't stay a mystery. God broke it out on planet Earth. And we, John's saying, we were the guys that got to see it. We were there. We got to be involved. 
we actually had the privilege of front row seats when the word came. The eternal word broke into history. We were there. The life was made manifest. We've seen it, testified to and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you. And this is, this is massive. And I'm, I'm going to just stop and help you think about this. Listen to the tone that he's writing with. See, I, I knew someone, a friend of mine from years ago, became a widow at a very young age, and it was a tragic story. She, she lost her husband. And I remember talking to her about, probably about a year later or within the next year, and she talked about how one of the challenges for her was now remembering him. Because it was easy, in spite of the fact that it was still recent and he had been her husband, it was easy for her to actually kind of, Forget that she'd even been married to him because life just goes on and life just gets busy and you forget things. And, and so she, she would just get the photos out and kind of just regather the memories. Just, just have an evening sometimes where she'd just remember and just stop and I don't want to lose him. She felt like the sand was going through the sieve. It was like, I just, I just want to retain while I can. Now is that the, is that the style he's writing in here? Is that the tone that John writes in? I wonder, if we get on to verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is, not was, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is powerful here. Listen carefully. I... I guess, I mean, I, I know someone who, or I knew someone who, um, he got to see the Beatles. You may have heard of them. There was, a, there was a time when he got to see them in the cavern, which was like when they were no one. They were just this kind of one of the bands in Liverpool, about 1960, 61. And he was just there. And he, and he was actually a friend of my dad, a, a, a friend's dad. And uh, his friend's dad had been there. And he said one of the Beatles even went to the bathroom between songs and stepped on his toe and said sorry to him. Wow. It's like that was when they were no one. And then, you know, then they went on to change the world. It's I couldn't believe it when he told me. And I, I remember, I've often thought, you know, what would it be like if you were Paul McCartney, if you, if you were there? I mean, he was, he was one of the Beatles, by the way, and he's still alive today. And so he, he, had, uh, he would have lots of memories, some extraordinary memories, I'm sure, of the others, the ones that died. John Lennon's died, George Harrison's died. And people that others would think, I wonder what it was like to hang out with those people. I'm sure he gets asked all the time, what was it really like? What was Lennon really like? And tell us what it was like. When did you get into your fights? When did you, what was he like when you got discussing things? What, how did he behave? But listen to this verse. Is that the way John? John was one of the 12. It was it, one of the three. It was Jesus and John, Peter, and James. The four. They were like the, the, the fab four. And, and he was one of them. Three and a half years, they hung out all the time. You'd expect, wouldn't you, to him, to him to write, guys, I got to hang out with him. You should have been there. I'm only sorry that I can't. I just, I'll tell you as much as I can. I'll tell you a few stories. No? That's not it. 
What he's saying is so different. Look at it again, verse 3. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Is. You can. Have fellowship. He's saying, guys, I, I continue to have fellowship with him. He's still with me in my life. And what's more... He can be in your life in just the same way, to just the same degree, so that we're not left thinking, oh, I wish I was there. You don't need to think like that. God's kindness to us is that his son is given us forever, forever with us, forever leading us, caring for us, involved with our lives, involved with his church. That's normal Christianity. If you, if you don't get this, you're, if this, and if this doesn't seem weird to you, if it doesn't leave you thinking, how does that work? Then you haven't been listening because it's massively weird. But it's totally biblical. Jesus is completely present with his church, completely committed to his church. And I want to begin to answer the question, how is he present how is he leading his church now how does jesus lead the church the global church from heaven how does jesus lead this church how does jesus lead emmanuel from heaven well by his word by his word his word for us and uh, this is illustrated by lots and lots of examples but let me just use one from chapter 5 of ephesians where he says he's talking to married couples Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus continues his relationship leading the church, caring for the church, cherishing the church like a really good husband. In fact, Jesus is the really good husband. There never has been a, a purely good husband except for Jesus. He loves his church as his bride. But the way he loves her is not just in the one act of dying upon the cross for her, but by, as he says continually, the washing of water with the word. The washing of water. Maybe there's a... a, a, a a kind of a, a hat tip to baptism there. Maybe there's a reference even to the washing of the disciples' feet. Jesus carried on washing his church and still does so today. From heaven, he carries on washing, cleansing, preparing, maturing. How does he do it? By the word. The word. His words to us. They are life to us, they are strength to us, they are leadership to us. Jesus leads us by his word. And we, we need to grasp this. This is huge for us. It's again, it's there in John. So I know we're skipping around the New Testament a lot in this message. And it's sometimes we have to, some sermons you need to really drill into the Bible so that people understand you're not just making this up, that we're really trying to get this from what the scripture says. But here you get, for example, in 1 John chapter 1 again, remember what I was been reading from? That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, listen, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the logic of the language is quite important there. He said, we, we've seen and heard and, 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 and all these things we've seen and heard. We proclaim, we teach, we preach, we tell you, we use words, we share words with you so that you too may have fellowship with God, so that you might know God. You might have relationship with God. How? Through the teaching of Jesus, through the word of Jesus, through what's taught about Jesus from Scripture. And then even to make it clear that we talk that Scripture is included, he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The implication is that the Bible, God's word proclaimed, God's word about his son Jesus, written by prophets and psalmists and apostles and evangelists and all the way through from cover to cover, these words about Christ and John's letter itself, written to us, not so that we can just be better educated. Not just so that you can know a bit more about Christianity. Not so your head can get bigger or your notepad can get fatter. But so that you can know God. That's what it's for. That's the, the teaching of the Bible is to bring you closer in relationship and enjoyment of God through his son Jesus. This is so important because I tell you, generally speaking, Christians, what I'm used to seeing and hearing, sometimes even in my own heart, is a tendency to think, well, the way I'm really going to get to know God is by kind of having these specific encounters or experiences or ways in which he kind of specifically meets my needs as I call out to him. And you can have experiences of God and you can have him meet your needs as you quite and that's all fine. But the mistake is when we think, yeah, we get that the teaching is important. We get that the Bible, the Bible's kind of important, but really I want to know God. I want to have an experience of God. So can we just put the Bibles aside? That doesn't help me have an experience of God. I'm here to tell you you're wrong. You're really wrong. You're dangerously wrong. The Bible is the way to know God. It's the way to be brought into true experience of him, not just one-offs, but life with him. The way he's chosen to bring us into fellowship, to reveal, and to bring us joy. Remember what he said? I write this so that your joy may be full. If you want to enjoy God, don't wander away from the Bible. Look nowhere else. Come back to what he has given us. This is the revelation of his son. You might say, what, all of it? All of the Bible? Yeah. This whole book is about Jesus. This whole book is endorsed by Jesus. Jesus would constantly make that clear. So you need to understand this. Sometimes people will try and put the Bible on one side, put Jesus on the other for all kinds of reasons. Because Jesus is kind of cuddly and liberal. The Bible is really non-PC. So we, you know, we love Jesus. We're just not so fond of the Bible. You can't really do that. Because Jesus was very clear. He wasn't just into the Bible. He was utterly submitted to it. He said very strong things. The, the scriptures, he says, cannot be broken. He speaks about the Bible always as the final authority. Whenever he's any dispute, any debate, any discussion, you, you will notice again and again when you read his, the stories of Jesus, the way he quotes the Bible, it is written. That's how he speaks. That's it. It's the final word. Whenever Jesus says it is written, it's like, okay, argument over. We, we don't want to talk anymore. 
We get it. You're saying the Bible is the final word. He said so. So we've no right to split it off from him. We're just being unreal. He's utterly committed to its utter authority as the word of the Father, the word of God. In fact, his own word. And not only was it, in that sense, his word, it's the word that refers to him. Jesus, again, very often was clear on this. Places like John chapter 5, where some opponents are arguing with him, and he says to them, you guys, you claim to be experts in the Bible. And they were. These were the Pharisees. They knew their Old Testament really, 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 really well. They probably would have memorized chunks of it, if not all of it. Jesus had the audacity to say to these people, you study the Scriptures thinking that you'll have life from them, but you won't come to me. And it's actually the scriptures that testify concerning me. What's he saying? He's saying, do you know what? The whole Old Testament is about me. That's what Jesus said. He said, Abraham, Abraham, right back in the book of Genesis, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. The whole book is about Jesus. The whole book is spoken out ultimately through Jesus. He's the word of the Lord. He's the word of God. Jesus is behind every verse and Jesus is the the focus, the, the, the theme, the rationale of every verse, of every chapter, of every book of the Bible. So we, we need to have this approach to us so that we understand when we turn to it, when we yield to it, when we submit to it, we're coming to Jesus. We're not coming away from him, we're coming to him. He's to be found in the pages of this book. I urge you to take that seriously, to think that through in your own life. You might say, what, including the offensive bits of the Bible? Including the offensive things that we find uncomfortable, that we don't like, that don't fit with our culture and our opinions, our 21st century views? Yes. Yes, for sure. Let me ask you a question. When you say, I find the Bible offensive, well, first of all, so do I. Okay? That means you're reading it. Well done. If you found it offensive, well done. Okay? If you find it, oh, the Bible's not offending me at all, go and read it. Okay, be real. It is offensive. There's lots about it that will offend you. Of course it will. But what do we do about that? Could it be that you've misinterpreted it? Could it be you've misunderstood what's being said plainly? That often happens. We misunderstand what it's actually teaching. We don't realize that it's criticizing something when actually we think it's endorsing it and vice versa. We need to read it carefully and understand it. And secondly, have you thought about your cultural glasses, the lenses through which you see everything? See, we, we, we are so strange. 21st century Brightonians, we're so convinced that we know the best way to live. That society has reached its zenith in 21st century Western cities. The, the, the world has reached its point of ultra-evolution. We know exactly how society should run. And these ancient, awful books written by savages from thousands of years ago are full of darkness and misery. Why do we get that idea? Why do we assume that we know better? Always. And here's the thing. We think, well, the Bible's offensive. Yeah, yeah, we, I just said, I agree. The Bible is definitely offensive. But why? Why should it? Why is it offensive? Is it because the Bible's wrong? Or is it because we're wrong? See, there are different cultures around the world that find the Bible offensive for different reasons. If you go to some, some uh, developing world, some, some Eastern context, and you talk to them about the Bible, they'll say, yeah, we agree with what the Bible says about so much. Traditional morality, family. Sexuality, gender, those things. The Bible teaches those things, and we, 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 we uphold those things. That's important. 
What about what it says about forgiveness of sins and God treating people as totally righteous in a moment because Jesus' blood paid the price for them? No way, that is offensive. That forgiveness stuff, we don't have that. And you come to the West, stroll over to Brighton, and you find it's kind of, yeah, we love the forgiveness stuff. We love that about the Bible. We love the way it's kind of inclusive and gracious and God's diverse and brings in all kinds of different people and forgives them. We love that. But what about the stuff about sexual morals and God wants sex to be done through a man and a woman in covenant relationship forever? Now, that's highly offensive to us. So, so whatever, every culture you know, it takes some heat from the Bible. Just because we take heat doesn't mean we're right. It means that that's the area where we just don't like what the Bible says. And if you have a Bible that you've decided, well, I don't like those bits, so I'll ignore those, and I don't like that bit, and I'll just, I'll just chop that bit out, I'll have what's left. Well, you can have that Bible if you like, but it won't be the real Bible. If you have the God of the Bible that you made up, you have a God that you made up. And welcome to a pointless God, a God who is basically you. A God that's real will be a God that annoys you, that you don't like what they say sometimes. Trust me, I've been a Christian for most of my life. I've been a preacher for much of my life. And there's still lots of bits of the Bible that I realize, oh, gosh, help me. Help me, God. Just being real. But here's the thing. Here's the big thing I want to finish on. What do we do when we hit those points? And if you're reading it properly, you will. If our attitude is, this is basically my book and my God to control, well, you, just, you just pulled the plug out. There's no power left at all. There's no point. Just give up. Give up. Be an atheist. It's not a real God. But to know God truly, well, I'll let Isaiah say it. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, where God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. See, it's not just cities like Brighton, it's even churches now that are loaded up with people that treat the Bible like an opinion. That's just, you know, it's just interesting to have that. It's helpful to have that somewhere in the house. God says, I'm not interested in people like that. This, this is the one I look to, the one who's humble enough to tremble at my word. Do you tremble at the word of God? The word of God comes with authority, and we are foolish and arrogant to assume that it needs to somehow qualify itself according to our 21st century presuppositions. God comes to deliver with his word. God comes to set us free, to change us, to heal us, to raise us from spiritual death with his word. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Woman, be healed. Demon, come out of her. Receive your sight. Take up your bed and walk. This is the voice of Jesus. He even said to a storm, be still. This is the power of the word of God. And we, we kind of dissect it and discuss it and criticize it and treat it as if it's just so much ancient philosophy. Jesus would never would have done that. His disciples would never have done that. None of his church should do that. We must treat this word with reverence. We might not always understand it. We might struggle with it, but we struggle in humility. 
Say, God, teach me. I want to persevere to understand and apply this book to my life. Friends, imagine a church in the 21st century in cities like Brighton that genuinely lived that way, that genuinely treated the Bible as God's kind gift. I tell you, that kind of church would shine out like a beacon in dark places. That's what it is to us. There are places in the world today where the Bible is illegal. Even in this city, someone was burned to death for translating the Bible into English just a few hundred years ago. The Bible's God's word. It's powerful. How are you treating it? Let me say finally to help you with this, because this is a stern way to finish, and it doesn't have to be. Jesus Jesus comes into our life with with his voice, with his authority. And he talks about this in John chapter 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. I name them, each one. They know me. But he also says this, the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. What's the difference between Jesus and a kind of religious tyrant? Jesus is the shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. He doesn't lay the sheep down for his own life. He lays his life down first. When the wolf comes, the good shepherd goes out to meet it. Do you know what? A wolf did come. A wolf called guilt. A wolf called sin. A wolf called shame. A wolf called death. A wolf came for you. And Jesus went out to meet it. And Jesus died. So when we look at this book and we find things that we're not so sure of, things we struggle with, I don't know if I like this, but I don't know if I like your words. These are the words of a very good shepherd. I want you to think that way. I want you to trust the Bible because it's the good word of a good shepherd. Even when it's hard to to, to follow his demands, they're good demands. That's what faith is. It's saying, I don't understand everything, but I trust you, Jesus. I believe in you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son and the gift of your word to lead us into truth and the gift of your spirit to help us grasp it. I pray that would happen in each of our lives this year and continually in Jesus' name. Amen.